Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you enjoy the teachings from Beth Emanuel, share the links with your friends. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends about the things you are learning at Beth Emanuel. Help us grow the message. Abraham sent his servant Eliezer on a mission to seek out a suitable bride for his son Isaac. To be fair, you should notice that Genesis 24 does not actually identify the servant by name. It could have been another of Abraham's servants, but tradition identifies the servant as Eliezer, Eliezer of Damascus. When he introduces himself, he does not give his name at all. He only introduces himself as the servant of Abraham. I am Abraham's servant. The apostles took careful note of this story. They considered themselves to be like Eliezer, the servant of Abraham, who had been sent out on a mission by his master. Whenever they spoke of themselves, they identified themselves as the servants of Yeshua, or the sent ones of Yeshua. That's why they refer to him as the master. And he says, you call me teacher and master, and you are right, for so I am. In another place, he says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. In yet another passage, he rebukes his disciples. Why do you call me master, master, and do not do what I tell you? Don't forget that the common Hebrew word evid can be translated as either servant or slave, depending on the whim of the translator, because it's actually the same concept in the Bible. The Hebrew does not differentiate between a servant and a slave. The Greek has the same ambiguity. In the biblical world, they were the same thing. One's slaves were his servants, and his servants were his slaves. Therefore, the disciples understood themselves to be servants to Yeshua. The apostles did not take titles for themselves beyond the idea that they were servants of Yeshua. Yeshua complained about the pretentious scholars and academics of his day who loved the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. He told his disciples that they were not to adopt such titles for themselves. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Thus, the disciples of Yeshua felt uncomfortable taking titles beyond that of the simple and humble title, servant of Yeshua. Even James, the brother of the master, when introducing himself at the superscription of his epistle, refers to himself not as James, the brother of Yeshua, nor as James, the bishop over the assembly of Yeshua in Jerusalem, but simply as James, a servant of God and of the master Yeshua, the Messiah. Likewise, Peter and Paul, Paul, a servant of the Messiah Yeshua, 
called to be an apostle, Romans 1.1. Shimon Peter, a servant and apostle of Yeshua the Messiah, 2 Peter 1.1. Only Jude adds an additional clarifying appellation, since there were three apostles named Yehuda, named Jude. So he writes, Jude, a servant of Yeshua the Messiah, and brother of James, Jude 1.1. But he does not presume to refer to himself as brother of Yeshua, which he might have done if he sought to capitalize off of his prestige. Isn't that remarkable? Instead, when speaking self-referentially, both he and his brother James steer away from referring to Yeshua as their brother because it would imply that they are peers and equals, equal to the Messiah. Instead, Jude expresses his relationship to Yeshua not as brother of Yeshua, but as servant of Yeshua. The apostles don't take prestigious titles upon themselves, nor do they speak of themselves in terms of rank or priority. Instead, each one has adopted this lowly posture of servant of Yeshua. They do not even presume to identify themselves as disciples of Yeshua. Simon Peter does not introduce himself as disciple of Yeshua, even though he ranked first among the disciples. He does not take that credit for himself. He refers to others as disciples of Yeshua, but when speaking of himself, he is a servant of Yeshua. It would be too much, ascribing too much honor to himself to refer to himself above the simple status of servant and claim, I am a disciple of Yeshua. Just as Abraham's servant Eliezer refused to refer to himself as something special or someone special, likewise, the apostles referred to themselves merely as the servant of Yeshua the Messiah. But what about the title apostle? They do refer to themselves as apostles. Isn't that something special? A person sent on a mission is called a shaliach, which means sent one. The same word translates into Greek as apostolos, which in turn enters English New Testament translations as apostle. In that sense, Abraham commissioned and sent Eliezer as his apostle. Yeshua commissioned his apostles with a similar assignment. He sent them to testify to his resurrection, announce the good news, and make disciples for himself. The title, Apostle of Yeshua, is an exclusive title which does not refer to all disciples. It refers only to those commissioned by the risen and living Yeshua during the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension. That's a capital A Apostle. But in the more generic sense, the word shaliach actually refers to someone sent on a mission to act as an agent on behalf of the person sending, usually in a legal capacity, representing the sender. In most cases, one's shaliach was probably a household servant sent to carry out a task by the master of the household. If you had your own servant, for example, and you needed to get your taxes done, why not hand your servant all of the paperwork, send him to the accountant, and authorize him to sign the papers on your behalf so you don't need to think about it at all? That servant would then be acting as your shaliach, your sent one. He would be representing you in a legal capacity. In that, reg- in that regard, the term shaliach, that is, apostle, was not intended to carry prestige, but to indicate the type of task assigned to a particular servant. 
In his first epistle, Peter introduces himself as Shimon Peter, a servant and apostle of Yeshua the Messiah. The terms servant and apostle are nearly synonymous. Peter is not boasting in his position of authority, but simply stating who he is and what his job is. To be a servant means to subordinate your own will to the will of a master. It not only requires obeying his direct orders, but also looking after his interests. It means putting his needs ahead of your own. The servant does not have freedom to do whatever he wants, to spend money on whatever he wants, to date or marry whoever he wants, to act however he wants, to live wherever he wants. All of these things, which we consider to be our basic rights, are subordinate to the directives of the servant's owner. You don't belong to yourself if you belong to someone else. Your owner decides these things and instructs you in all that you should do. Yeshua tells his disciples, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. The disciples considered themselves servants of Yeshua and apostles of Yeshua. Servants sent out on a mission for the Master. They derived inspiration and direction from the story of Abraham's servant Eliezer in our Torah portion, and they learned it by following the Master's own example. The prophecies of Isaiah name the Messiah Eved Hashem, the servant of the Lord. Yeshua calls himself the Shaliach of God, sent by the Father to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and to redeem Israel and the world. In the Gospel of John, he repeatedly reminds his disciples that he was sent from the Father. He refers to God as the one who sent me, the Father who sent me, he who has sent me, and so forth. He used the term in various formulas at least 40 times throughout the book of John. In that regard, he modeled the work of the Shaliach, and his disciples, in imitation of him, understood themselves as shlichim too, but rather than referring to themselves as sent by God or sent by the Father, they viewed themselves as sent by Yeshua, who in turn was sent by the Father. This relationship to God through Yeshua is at the heart of their devotion to the Master. It's in all of their language. It's not only the way they introduce themselves, but in their prayers, their doxologies, their speech, and their conduct. They are too humble to claim to have a relationship with God outside of the relationship that the Son has with the Father. Their own relationship to God is subordinate to their relationship with the Son of God, the Messiah. This is something they learned from our Torah portion, in which Eliezer speaks of his relationship with God, not as his God, but as the God of his master Abraham. He prays, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. When he blesses God, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. This is what it means to pray in the name of your master, as Yeshua says, in that day you will ask in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This implies more than simply signing off at the end of a prayer, in Jesus' name, amen, over and out. 
When Eliezer prayed, he did not presume to consider that he was worthy of God heeding his prayer or answering his request. Instead, when he prayed, he spoke to God only in the merit and virtue of his master, asking God to show favor, not to him, but to his master, Abraham. Likewise, the apostles prayed to the God and Father of our master, Yeshua the Messiah, and they blessed the God and Father of our master, Yeshua. They scarcely ever speak of Hashem without, in the same breath, making mention of the master. Even when they speak of themselves as sons of God or daughters of God, that claim is based only upon their relationship to the Son of God, whose spirit has been planted in their hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. People often speak of their relationship with God in broad terms, outside of association with our Master. Even secular people will speak in broad generalizations about God or the universe or the higher power. But true disciples of Yeshua don't make the assumption of knowing God or drawing near to him outside of relationship with his servant and his shaliach. As it says in the Torah, And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. We rely not upon our own relationship with God, but rather upon Yeshua's relationship with God. God loves all of his creatures. He loves every single human being. We are all precious to him. God is love. There are no accidents, and he desires relationship with each individual. But the relationship between Hashem and the Messiah exists on a different level, a much higher level, like the relationship between a father and a son. The disciple of Yeshua is not like everyone else, because our master is not like everyone else. We enjoy special access and intimacy with the Almighty, not because we deserve it or because we are more worthy or more virtuous than other people. We aren't. In fact, the greatest saints are the first to acknowledge themselves to be the most unworthy sinners. If anything, a disciple of Yeshua is more conscious of his own personal failings than a non-disciple. So it's not a matter of self-righteousness or any sense of superiority. We have a closer relationship with the Creator than others enjoy only because our Master has a closer relationship with God and we are associated with Him. Like the expression, riding in on His coattails, we are those who take hold of the robe of a Jew saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. People sometimes puzzle over why they should need Yeshua at all. After all, his message is not different than the message of the earlier prophets. And anyone can repent. Anyone can draw near to God. Anyone can speak to God. Anyone can pray. For what do we need a middleman? Let me explain it in a parable. It can be compared to two boys who wanted to meet a famous baseball player when the team was in town. Both boys had tickets. Both boys attended the game. But one of the boys knew the team Bat Boy. This boy said to the other, I know the Bat Boy. He can get us into the locker room to meet our hero. But the other boy sniffed contemptuously. Why do I need that kid? I have a ticket, just like you and everyone else here. When the game began, both boys tried to meet the famous ball player but only one of them was able to enter the locker room and get a baseball card signed, while the other only waved and cheered from the stands. 
This parable is to answer the question, For what do I need Yeshua? If a person was to ask you, For what do I need Jesus? How should you answer? I've thought about this. In our circles, the question might be posed like this. Why does Judaism need Yeshua? Rabbi Kinzer replied, Judaism is Yeshua. Yeshua is Judaism. It's not like Yeshua adds something to the Torah. He embodies the Torah. But the best and most honest answer I can offer to the question, for what do I need Yeshua, is simply to say, maybe you don't, but I do. Like Eliezer, the servant of Yeshua, I don't presume that God is going to answer my prayer for my sake or act with chesed toward me for my sake or look upon me with favor for my sake. I don't assume that he will single me out from everyone else to have mercy on me. I'm not special in any way. But my master Yeshua has God's favor and he enjoys God's favor, like the special relationship between a father and a son. So long as I attach myself to him, so long as I am with him, I benefit from his relationship with God and the favor God shows to him. That's what grace is. That's what it means when the New Testament speaks of the gospel of the grace of God. The word grace is usually understood as a synonym for mercy. It's not. That's not what it means. It's not mercy. It's favor. It's God playing favorites. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's grace. It's natural to suppose that God loves everyone equally because that seems like it would be fair and just. But that's not how God runs the world and not how his justice works. He does have favorites. For example, he favors the righteous over the wicked. He favors the orphan, the widow, and the stranger. He favors the poor and the downtrodden. He favored Noah. He favored the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He favored Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Joseph and Judah over the other brothers. He favored the nation of Israel. He favored his servant Moses. He favored his servant David. Of all the things he favors, he favors the Messiah the most. He's the favored son. As the voice from heaven declared, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. To which of the angels or to which of his other servants did he ever declare, This is my son? The Messiah is his favorite. This explains why we pray in the merit and favor of our master Yeshua and attach ourselves to him. The people who talk the most about grace don't understand it at all. They speak about it in antithesis to righteousness and as if it is the opposite of living according to God's commandments. They consider grace and the Torah as diametrically opposed systems, and according to them, one who observes the Torah forfeits grace. This proves that they don't understand grace at all. What is grace? It's the fact that God has favorites. He favors the Messiah, Yeshua. And because of the favor that our Master Yeshua found in the eyes of God, we too can share in that favor. Eliezer knows that he's not God's favorite. He doesn't pretend to be. He knows that God's favor is poured out on Abraham. Abraham is his favorite. 
Therefore, he acts in Abraham's name, prays in Abraham's name, and identifies himself only as the servant of Abraham. And because he acts in Abraham's name, prays in Abraham's name, and identifies himself as the servant of Abraham, God answers Eliezer's prayers as if they were Abraham's prayers. Eliezer relies completely upon grace, the favor that his master Abraham found in the eyes of Hashem. Eliezer prayed, Grant me success for the sake of my master Abraham. This prayer probably wouldn't have yielded results if Eliezer had tried using it for some selfish purpose. Suppose that before meeting Rebekah at the well, Eliezer went to the camel races in Haran to make a little money by betting on camels before heading back to Canaan. He puts some money on one of the camels, and as the race begins, he prays, Grant me success for the sake of my master Abraham, and let lucky lady cross the finish line first. Would God answer this prayer? After all, he prayed in Abraham's name, right? No, God's not going to answer that prayer on behalf of Abraham because it's not actually in Abraham's name or for his sake. It's not part of the mission that Abraham sent his servant out to perform. It's not part of the shlichut. It's not sufficient to tack onto whatever selfish prayer we offer in Abraham's name, amen. A prayer in the name of one's master must be offered for the purpose of accomplishing the will of one's master. This reminds me of what it says in Pirkei Avot, Make it your will to do the will of the Almighty, and the Almighty will make it his will to do your will. Eliezer demonstrates a single-minded devotion to the mission assigned to him by his master. He doesn't go to the camel races just because he happens to be in Haran. In fact, he refuses to tarry at all. After the long journey from Canaan, he could have enjoyed ten days or a month of hospitality in the house of the household of Bethuel before loading up and heading back. But he refused. Even when they pressured him to stay a few days, he said, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master. Where is this type of single-minded devotion to our master Yeshua today? How might our religion look different today if, instead of apathetic assent to theological creeds and doctrines, the followers of Yeshua burned with devotion to the mission and the directives of their master, as Eliezer did toward his master, Abraham? We need to remind ourselves that we are servants of Yeshua. Moreover, we have a mission. We are here in this lifetime, in his school of disciples, for a reason— He has charged us with a mission. We aren't capital A apostles like James, Jude, Peter, and Paul, but we are sent by Yeshua on a mission nonetheless. Our mission is to proclaim the good news and bring the light of the revelation of the kingdom to the whole world. We are messengers, and our message is the knowledge of God, His coming kingdom, and the resurrection of the Messiah toward hastening the final redemption and the Messianic era. No one understood this mission better than the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Even though he himself was neither a disciple of our master nor a servant of Yeshua, yet he understood the mission and the need for apostles to carry it out. He was a survivor of the Holocaust who lost most of his family along with the Jewish world he had known in the fires of the Holocaust. 
He had arrived in America to discover the Jewish people slipping into assimilation, forsaking Jewish identity under a fresh wave of secularism and a materialist worldview which denies God and denies spirituality. On the one hand, he saw Jews sent into the ovens of the Nazis and targeted by the Arab nations. On the other hand, he saw Jews being swallowed whole by godless secularism, apathetic agnosticism, and cold atheism. He realized that the world needs Messiah now, and so he sent to work to bring the redemption. He raised up disciples and sent them out as apostles. He sent them to every city where Jews could be found, in every country. These disciples gave him their loyalty, and they sacrificed their own aspirations, career plans, and personal identities to adopt the simple role of being a shaliach of their Rebbe, his legal representative, wherever they went. They adopted austere and simple lives to carry out the mission of finding Jews and encouraging them to keep the mitzvot. Simple things. Light Shabbos candles. Put on tefillin. Daven with a minion. Attend a Shabbos dinner. And loftier things, too. Start day schools. Lead classes. Get a kosher market going. Establish a mikvah. Teach Torah. Teach Jews about Judaism and teach Gentiles about the laws of Noah. The Shaliach was responsible for all of this. It was a lifelong calling, a sacrificing of one's personal life for the sake of serving the Rebbe and carrying out the Rebbe's work. His Shlichim fanned out across the nation and across the earth, and they changed the course of Judaism. They rescued it from extinction and reignited the flame of faith. From where did the Rebbe find the inspiration for this Shaliach movement? You might suppose that he found it in the New Testament, and that's possible. Not the first time Chassidut has borrowed from our Master. But I think he also found it in this Torah portion. He says, We are all entrusted with a mission, comparable to the one Abraham gave to Eliezer, to go out and find those souls that have drifted away and bring them back to God, their husband. And just as Abraham assured Eliezer that his mission would be crowned with success, we too are assured that our attempts to bring back the lost souls of Israel will also be blessed with success. If like Eliezer, we are totally committed to our mission and pray to God for assistance in its fulfillment, we are indeed assured that God will crown our sincere and tenacious efforts with success. So too may it be for us, the servants of Yeshua, as we commit ourselves without reservation, in total and in whole, with sincerity and tenacity, to the service of King Messiah and the execution of the mission with which he has charged us. Take on my yoke And learn from it And find rest for your soul